If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may have a seat. My name is Sarah, and I'm one of the priests here at Church of the Cross, and it has been reported to me that as a child, I cried during every movie and show for a block of years. I also have vivid memories of running out of rooms repeatedly. Didn't matter if it was a comedy or a drama or something else entirely. If it was a story on the screen, I cried and I ran. <laughs> I couldn't stand the losses portrayed, but also I just couldn't take the tension. Those moments when you knew people were misunderstanding one, enough and one another and it would end up in some kind of hurt or ridicule, oh, those moments undid me. Made me a lot of fun, um, made, me, made it a lot of fun to take me places. Um, apparently I wailed so loudly and honey I shrunk the kids <laughs> that my parents almost had to leave the theater. <laughs> so you might be quite familiar with the story we're considering today from John 4. And this is a story that embodies tension in a way that may want to make us leave the room. I hope you'll stay. <laughs> Father Peter gave a warning last week that there would be a lot of movie references in his sermon. This week, fair warning, there will be a lot of sitcom references in mine. Um, we'll even be looking at our passage through three elements that the best sitcoms, in my opinion, employ. And they are present in spades in our passage. Cringe, callbacks, and confusion. First, cringe. There are a number of sitcom series that I would recommend to you, and I would give you the following instruction. Start with season two. For several shows, the first few episodes or the first season is so full of cringe, you may not make it through to the good stuff. Your tolerance for cringe has not been built up. Similarly, there are some uncomfortable moments peppered in these first few chapters of John. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. Woman, says Jesus to his mother, why do you involve me? Jesus made a whip and drove out money changers. Statements like, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Uncomfortable sayings sprinkled in one moment, uncomfortable actions the next. And here, we get both. Our cringe tolerance is deemed ready. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There are a number of features here that are cringeworthy. First is the setting. 
While a well is, yes, a place of utility, a place to procure a basic necessity, it is also, in many stories, a place where people met or were led to their future spouses. Jacob himself meets Rachel at a well. Rebecca is chosen as a bride for Isaac because of an encounter at a well. If we were watching a movie, this would be the equivalent of a man walking down one street and a woman walking down the other, and the two converge at the corner, bumping into each other, spilling all of his first grader's artwork and all of her architectural designs. This would be the meet-cute, right? So the setting of the well unsettles us a bit, unsettles us into asking, what kind of story will this be? Then we have a rabbi and a woman alone together. Some rabbinic traditions encourage men to not even have conversations with women. It makes you look suspect, possibly dishonorable, kind of getting at that same question, what is Jesus intending here? Best to keep your distance, avoid this kind of ambiguity. Finally, there's a long history of contention, strife, and disrespect between Samaritans and Jews, such that Jews wouldn't drink or eat from the same vessels as Samaritans. That's what some translations have as that direct meaning of associate in verse 9, for Jews do not use the same vessels as Samaritans. If you and I were talking, and you said, whew, Texas heat, I'm thirsty, And I said, oh, here. And I offered you my water bottle. What would you do? Our own sense and sensibilities of contamination take over at this moment. It may not be religious, but you might have a very visceral reaction to that offer. Some of you would just go for it. Thanks, and drink like it was your own water bottle. Some of you would do the move where like you pour it into your mouth, but you make sure your lips don't touch where my lips have touched, right? And probably most of you would say, oh no thanks, and suddenly backtrack, maybe even physically move away in whatever way you could as fast as possible. I'm not that thirsty, actually, or uh, I think I have my water bottle in my car. As silly as we think the tradition of not using the same vessels as Samaritans is, we get that visceral reaction, that there's something intimate and almost tribal about who gets to drink from your same container. So Jesus here is saying, I'm engaging you, a woman, alone in an ambiguous setting, and I'm asking you to cross the practices of cleanliness as if we are from the same intimate circle. The woman herself said, this was a cringe moment, how can you ask me for a drink? We have similar moments of cringe in our lives. Collectively, passing the peace may be one of them. (laughs) Some of you have found your way into a warm reception of that time in our service. And for others of us, it may still be a little cringe. We conveniently want to go to the bathroom. Or we try to find that person we already know as quickly as possible because we feel awkward and clumsy. What are we even supposed to say to each other? My favorite is the times that I I just reach out and that person either either didn't see me or stump me and and then they turn the other way and I'm like, oh, did anybody else see that? (laughs) 
that feels great. <laughs> Some of us are quick to feel insecure, quick to feel our difference in those moments. So why don't we just cut out the cringe? It's because there's a deeper cringe that's even worse. Right, the deeper cringe is that you could come to a worship service and not be seen, nor be called to see others. The deeper cringe is that you would not be looked in the eye and welcomed as a brother and sister, that you may leave feeling more lonely than when you came. What is truly cringe is that this woman might have been kept from knowing Jesus, might have been kept from living water and true worship. How can you ask me, the woman says. Jesus says, how could I not? Jesus is the one who even today disrupts our polite sensibilities to address the embarrassing and unsettling things we've learned to live with. What are the places and relationships that bring out our cringe? That family member who has gone all in for a politician you find repugnant. That subject matter that you and your friend just don't talk about because it was awkward the first time and so there dare not be a second. Or maybe it's our insecurity relating to people who are different from us, different gender, ethnicity, marital status, or income bracket. We don't know what to say, how to get started, and even our fear of the cringe keeps us at a distance. How might embracing the surface cringe allow you and others to encounter Jesus? One of the things that makes a show like Arrested Development a masterpiece of comedy, particularly the first three seasons, is the artful and powerful use of callbacks. It makes it a show you can come back to again and again. In Arrested Development, Tony Hale portrays Buster Bluth, a character who loses his left hand halfway through the second season in a vicious attack from a loose seal. <laughs> there are connections in episodes that come weeks before the event. In season one, a number of background objects and characters are missing their hands. Very inconspicuous. Early in season two, there are throwaway lines about hands. Buster used to have a chair that looked like a giant hand, and when he rediscovered it, he said, I never thought I'd miss a hand so much. <laughs> Callbacks and Easter eggs keep you coming back in part because they display an incredible level of artistry, a level of care for where the story is going. Callbacks deepen your appreciation and affection for the moment in front of you, rather than, say, a tired trope which wears out the present moment. There are more callbacks in our passage than we are able to go through this morning. I do encourage you, church, to be reading and rereading John's Gospel through this series. It is crafted with skill and intention, and your appreciation will grow. Today, I want to draw our attention to the callbacks of Nathaniel and Nicodemus. In chapter 1, Nathaniel, like the Samaritan woman, is skeptical of Jesus because of his origins. In both stories, a kind of supernatural knowledge that Jesus displays draws each of them in, leading them to some admission of who they believe him to be. 
With Nathanael, Jesus references Jacob's dream. And now in our story, Jesus sits at Jacob's well. And at the end of our passage, we hear echoes of the same question Jesus asked his first disciples, what do you want? You see that same question again. We see the Samaritan woman enacting a defining response in John's gospel, inviting others to come and see. The callbacks give us eyes to see that this unlikely person is becoming before our eyes his disciple. In the economy of God, skepticism, along with gender, ethnicity, and religious practices, they do not deter the father's seeking. The true Israelite and the Samaritan woman alike are sought out. The callback to Nicodemus in chapter 3 comes through the themes of water and the spirit. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Samaritan woman, I can give you living water. We're given deepened images for life in the spirit. We see that the spirit is not only renewing a people of God through life, he is renewing a people of God for true worship. Worship that is empowered by the Spirit and steeped in the knowledge of Jesus. The callback increases our delight in the depth of our experience of the story at hand. We know more about the Spirit because of this. But there is this temptation, though. When we encounter similar situations in our own lives, there's a temptation that instead of seeing it as Jesus' invitation to expand our delight and our experience of him, we see it as a personal failure. I'm having trouble forgiving again. I'm having to trust God with my health or my financial security or my sense of worth again. A common refrain sounds something like, but I thought I already learned this. Resignation and shame obscure our perspective on what might be the goodness of God in a callback. Callbacks reveal the genius and long-held intention of the author. They reveal his transformative delight to deepen not only what you know, but who you are. It is an invitation in, not a pushing out. We often use that phrase from C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. You'll hear it dropped in a lot further up and further in. And because it's used to talk about life in the fullness of the kingdom, we almost always associate it with good feeling, good tasting, good sounding things. Um, but there are times when further up and further in is in fact cruciform. Further up and further in in suffering. Further up and further in and walking by faith and not by sight. Further up and further in in desperately needing God's grace and mercy. These are not shameful paths, but ones graced by our Savior who suffered. Whether the callbacks in your life have the feeling of building excitement like new connections in our text or feel painful like Jesus' naming of the woman's past. Both are a part of that larger story Father Peter preached about last week, the story of God's glory. It ends well. Where in your life 
Do you sense the callback of God? Where are you being confronted with the long-held intention of the author of life? His intention to be known by you, to give you living water, to form you in true worship, to give you his spirit and truth. God is still at work to reveal his glory, not just to you, but in you. Finally, we consider confusion. In most sitcoms, the very premise has an element of confusion. Michael Scott should not be the boss. <laughs> Leslie should have Ron's job. Ted Lasso should not be coaching soccer. <laughs> Gina Linetti should be reported to HR immediately. <laughs> Noon at Jacob's Well should be deserted. If there was no confusion, if everything was as it should be, this woman would have gotten water in the cool of the morning with the other women, and not alone in the heat of the day. But Jacob's well isn't empty. Something in her story has gone wrong, has been confused. In Jesus' conversation with her about her husbands, most scholars conclude that she is ostracized and outcast because of her prior relationships. Whether there is a promiscuity by choice or whether she is merely doing the best she can in a world where you needed husbands or other protective men to survive, the text is silent. Passing judgment on her is not the primary goal of Jesus, nor of John's text. I would gently argue that it is because of our own noon-at-the-well stories in our lives that each of us is here today. If things went well with that last relationship, that last job, that last church, your plans for your life 10 years ago, you might not be here. I wouldn't be here. Maybe right now there is an area of your life where you feel like you are coming to the well at noon. Some place in your life where things did not work out the way that you'd hoped. And you're making do. Maybe even the whole premise feels confused. There is good news. These aren't parts of a story we just make it through. These are places of life-changing encounters with Jesus. And he doesn't just happen to meet us there. He looks for us there. Verse 4 tells us Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And while there is a functional element here, it's the shortest route, sometimes people went around. Not only that, the word had to is most frequently translated as must. This is the same emphasis we read that Jesus must preach the gospel that he must stay at Zacchaeus' house, that the Son of Man must suffer. There is an imperative and intention nestled in this word. Jesus must come, finds himself compelled to meet us in places where our stories don't make sense. In the midst of the confusing premises of our lives, he comes. 
Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Where are the places of confusion in our lives today? And if Jesus is there waiting for you, will you ask him for living water? Will you ask him to give you the spirit? In this final moment, I want us to look again at Jesus. Look at how he doesn't flinch in the face of an ambiguous, intense situation, but he initiates the engagement. We see the depth of his compassion and steadfastness. Look at how he draws this woman, how he draws us in with ever-deepening image, addressing our need for life, our need for water, and living water, our need for worship, for worship that is spirit-empowered. There's a tenacity to his generosity. Look at how he doesn't avoid her story's difficulties or her people's difficult stories, but weaves them into a larger one. The skillful author who will redeem every inch of creation. In the midst of cringe, in the midst of callbacks, seen and unseen, in the midst of a situation that should not be, Jesus shows up, bestowing dignity and power and presence. May we not miss him today. I want to invite us in a moment here to be silent before the Lord, or at least with little ones, have a relative silence (laughs) before the Lord. If there is something that came to mind in mentioning cringe, a callback, or some area of confusion that just kind of, yeah, this thing came to mind for me, I want us to take a minute and offer that before the Lord to have a quiet moment, to bring it before him, to acknowledge that he is there waiting for us at the well at noon, and to ask him for what it is we need. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we believe that you speak today and that you long to speak to us. Lord, that you have a word. Lord, we ask that you would make that word clear. God, the places in us that were activated as we thought about situations in our own lives and in our hearts, would you draw those to mind? And would you give us courage to meet you in that place, to begin to meet you in that place here and now? Jesus, you know intimately the landscape of our lives and of our hearts. God, and you draw near out of your goodness. But Lord, you long to be close to us, even when it is noon at the well.
Lord, we ask that you would give us living water. And would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us? Would you form us as a people who find new life through your Spirit? And who are able to engage in true worship through your Spirit? Would you continue to meet us in your tender mercy and compassion on this day? We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.